Hello and welcome to Shadow Talk, a cybersecurity news and threat research podcast brought to you by the ReliQuest Photon Research Team. So a very busy week. Uh, I've actually been away for the last 11 days or so. Uh, so I've had some uh, well-deserved time, even if I say so myself, off away from work. So feeling quite refreshed. Um, I'm delighted this week to be joined by two of my colleagues from the ReliQuest family. Uh, so first up, we have Caroline. How are you doing, Caroline? Welcome. Hi, hello. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. How did you find your first Shadow Talk, first and foremost? How was it? It was awesome. I, I really enjoyed it. So I'm pretty excited to be on again. Fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we also have a, a veteran of Shadow Talk. How long have you been on Shadow Talk now, Ivan? Quite a few episodes, isn't it? I don't know if you've been counting. I think it's been since January of 2020. So it's been a little while. Well, that's <laughs> longer than me. So uh, you are definitely an old hat at doing these podcasts. So uh, thank you, as always, for joining. Um, so very busy week since I've been off. Uh, of course, you know, last week we had the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which, in addition to causing massive ripples in the financial world, uh, did have a significant impact on the threat landscape too, notably the use of kind of domain impersonation, and social engineering, you know, using the collapse as fish bait. Um, as always, actors will use um, any event if they think it kind of solicit enough concern from users into clicking that link or handing over details. Uh, or we've also seen reporting of a new type of scam, rather lovingly named Pig buttering, yes, you did hear, hear that right, uh, which is a growing cryptocurrency scam involving investment schemes, romance scams, and crypto fraud. Quite a complicated scheme, uh, but basically, in essence, the scammer initiates contact with a target, encourages the victim to actually invest in crypto trading, often making guarantees of investment returns, and then encouraging them to download certain apps or visit websites, which are often controlled by the scammers. And, and ultimately, it results in the victim being encouraged to add more money to the account. And then uh, in the end, that those funds are then taken away from that victim. So just another kind of crypto scam, really. If, if you are invested in, in this kind of space, you know, just be aware of this another method to be uh, that's been used to kind of steal your money. And finally, to mention, there's been a resurgence in activity from the CLOP ransomware group who have conducted mass attacks by targeting a bug in a popular data transfer tool uh, used by businesses around the world. That's called Go Anywhere. Uh, dozens of companies have since been named to CLOP's data leak site, and it's likely that more will follow in the coming weeks. Uh, that's actually a topic of our insum this week, so definitely go check that one out. Um, but we'll move on to the first uh, kind of topic uh, that we're going to discuss today, which is on recent arrests that have been made against the administrator of the Breach Forums uh, Cybercriminal Forum. So in essence, on the 17th of March of this year, <laughs> obviously, uh, security researchers started to report that the FBI had arrested a 21-year-old man in New York City on suspicion of being the founder and the administrator of the prominent English language cybercriminal forum, uh, which we all know is called Breach Forums. Uh, the arrest reportedly happened on March 15th, when the FBI, Homeland Security and local city police were seen removing several bags of evidence from the house while arresting a man. So first question to you, Ivan, is uh, could you provide our listeners with further context into Breach Forums uh, as a, a location on the, the cyber criminal sort of scene? Yeah, of course. Uh, so Breach Forums, it's a very popular or was a very popular English speaking cyber criminal forum. And uh, it was essentially created to replace raid forums. 
uh, after raid was seized by law enforcement. And breach forums, it was a complete replica of raid forums. And a lot of threat actors, they used the forum to leak data, uh, st stolen data. And there was also a community where threat actors could share information with each other and collaborate with each other. And what made breach forums and raid forums unique was that they were hosted on the clear web and not the dark web. So the barrier for entry was very low and anyone could make an account and join the community. Uh, so it was pretty common for us to see people learning the ropes of how to be a hacker in these forums. And But there were also some high profile threat actors that were very active on these forums, leaking data every week and collaborating with the community. Good stuff. So it's it's a completely open source, open community, no kind of vetted, gated community. Anybody can join, but does have, you know, some quite interesting actors who are, are active in the space and significant, um, I guess, schemes that have been conducted on that particular location. Um, Ivan, what do we know of the uh, the administrator of this forum who was arrested? So the the infamous Pom Pom Purin. Yeah, pump pump around. So they're a threat actor that they were very popular back in the day at raid forums before it was closed. Uh, they had a lot of ties to well-known threat actors like shiny hunters, and uh, they were a very respected member of the community. They were Pumperin was also well known for some high profile attacks, such as an attack on an FBI server, which resulted in thousands of hoax emails being sent uh, to users from an FBI domain. Uh, they also developed a website called Skidbin, which was very similar to Pastebin. So they had been known to be highly involved in the cybercriminal community uh, way before Bridge Forums was ever created. I guess we're not going to know exactly what the reason, uh, well, obviously the reason behind his arrest is, is the fact he's the administrator of this criminal site. But, you know, what was the reason that, that kind of triggered this, this operation in general? I wonder if it was that activity targeted towards the FBI. Um, how has the cyber criminal community reacted to this event, do you know? So there has been a mixed reaction in cyber criminal communities. Uh, from what we have been observing, there's a lot of users uh, from breach forums. They're now coming over and flooding dark web forums, such as XSS and Exploit. And uh, some users from these forums, they have been openly welcoming new members, uh, while others are concerned about the influx of low-level slash unskilled cyber criminals that are joining their forums. Uh, so while some users are upset about the closure of Breached, uh, the administrator of Breach Forums or the new administrator of Breach Forums, they said that they planned on creating a new forum that would be an improvement or a new version, an improved version of Breach Forums. So it seems like a lot of users right now, they're kind of waiting for that next, next big thing to be created. That's really interesting. Really interesting. And, and the fact that these uh, other kind of more uh, I guess gated communities are unhappy with this influx of uh, new members, you know, kind of drawing down the standards that they they probably set. That's that's really interesting. Um, what kind of impact will the takedown of breach forums uh, and obviously the administrator have on the, the cyber criminal landscape in general? Uh, what, what sort of impact do you think it's going to have? No, I think it's a it's a big blow for entry level cyber criminals, and it could likely act as a deterrent for anyone looking to follow in their footsteps. Uh, this forum was a go-to place for a lot of users to discuss their attacks, share ideas, and exposed uh, slash leak stolen data. Uh, and uh, the English-speaking community found a home in this forum. And now all these cyber criminals have to find a new place to collaborate and leak data. And we have already seen that you know a few popular options on the clear web. They're likely going to be Telegram, IRC channels, and even social media websites like 
Twitter. We have seen ransomware groups that have actually exclusively used Twitter to leak data or announce data breaches. So they're likely going to get creative, but uh, they're going to be more careful about their digital footprints because, you know, this sends a message that nobody is safe. That's a good way to end this particular segment. Nobody is safe. I like it. I like it. Uh, so you think there's not a, a standout option then, in your opinion, as to where these these kind of low level users will go or is it just kind of a, a wide kind of dispora of, of different kind of forums and, and locations on social media that they'll kind of go to? Yeah, you know, the, like I said, uh, Telegram is a popular one. There's yeah. a lot of threat actors already using Telegram. And uh, a lot of them, if they want to leak data or do some more uh, cyber criminal activities, they're going to yeah. go to the dark web forums, XSS, Exploit. Sure, uh, so, sure. yeah. But like I said, I think th there will likely be something new coming up in the next few months. Uh, highly likely because there's an open market now. Somebody's going to claim that. Yeah, there's there's always if, if there's a gap in, in this kind of market, someone's going to step up to that void, aren't they? And and, uh, and make a forum for, for these sort of users, particularly an English language forum, which, uh, which I guess are less common. Excellent. Um, thank you very much. Uh, let's move on to the next segment, uh, which relates to a crypto jacking group known as Team TNT, who is suspected as being responsible for uh, a previously undiscovered strain of malware that's been used to mine Monero cryptocurrency on compromised systems. Um, so this is a really interesting one, Caroline. Um, I remember, you know, crypto jacking being a, or crypto kind of uh, hijacking being a real problem even years ago. Uh, and Monero seemed to be the weapon of choice back then uh, in terms of cryptocurrency. So could you provide our listeners with uh, a little more context on, you know, who are Team TNT and, you know, a little more detail on the latest activity that's been attributed to this group? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Team TNT is a threat group that has been active since around 2019, um, and they're known typically for targeting cloud and container resources for that deployment of crypto miners. Uh, the group reportedly did shut down their operations in 2021. Um, however, they were observed in 2022 uh, actively scanning for misconfigured Docker daemons and deploying their own container images. Uh, recently, a previously undiscovered sample, most likely sourcing from Team TNT just because of the uh, TTPs that researchers noted within that sample, uh, was observed associated with the attack known as Scarl Teal. So it's not necessarily a new sample, um, it's just a previously undiscovered one. And interestingly enough, uh, that crypto miner was, again, eerily similar to uh, the, those known Team TNT samples. And this was observed as a decoy within this attack to distract from the full objective of data exfiltration. Excellent, excellent. What other TTPs uh, have you noted that have been associated to this group? Yeah, so as I just stated, so they're previous typically known for the deployment of those crypto miners within cloud and containerized environments. Um, so they have quite a few uh, different TTPs, but I'm just going to go over kind of like the most popular ones. Sure. Um, so for example, um, one would be to exploit those public facing and insecure kubelets that allow anonymous access. So then they search for containers running inside those Kubernetes, no Kubernetes nodes um, and then performing remote code execution on one of these containers. They're also known for um, running or pulling new container images as observed in a number of their operations. 
um, using container breakout tools such as breakout the box for lateral movement to move to other containers and also to um, cloud resources. Um, also discovery methods such as using Mascan to search for Kubelets and Kubernetes internal network, um, the host OS, CPU and memory information, um, et cetera. But the most interesting part of their TTPs to me um, is their methods of, of gaining credential access. Um, so they will search for credential files uh, uh, specifically on the host, such as SSH keys and Docker credentials, um, and then also querying the instance metadata service for cloud-specific creds. Um, and we'll go over that in a, in a moment. Good stuff, good stuff. So it's that usual adage of keeping your credentials safe because if you don't store them in a in a, a good fashion, then somebody's going to get a hand on them and then obviously use them for, for malicious activity. Yeah, we talked about credential management so much on this podcast. Kind of mm -hmm. seems to be a, a bit of a theme, really. Um, have you got any experience in kind of tracking similar activity? Like I say, I, I remember this from you know back in 2016, you know, crypto miners being used to to mask other activity that was going on in networks and stuff uh, and we've, we've kind of used that uh, as an example with ddos activity in the past is it you know particularly impactful or well, no but it might be used to kind of mask the, the trail of what else is going on in your network but uh, have you got any experience in, in kind of tracking this this sort of activity yeah so my research has typically pertained to that usage of uh the, their known ttp for um querying for a, the AWS instance metadata service to gain access to those higher privileged accounts um, in order to eventually deploy those crypto mining, uh, those crypto mining processes. Um, so the instance metadata service is used by uh, AWS and also other cloud providers to allow applications running on a virtual instance to access information about that running virtual instance. So uh, there's pretty much a, a huge wealth of information under um, that service that can be queried. Um, and it's pretty commonly used. And it's also hosted at an IP that is specific to IM IMDS. Um, so it's going to be um, pretty common. It's 169.254.169.2.254. Um, you might have seen this um, on your network quite a bit. Um, and a lot of people see it and they don't necessarily know what it is. So the most valuable information that's hosted there for an attacker um, is going to be that information regarding the instance, such as temporary session tokens and secret access keys pertaining to the instance. Um, and that can allow a threat actor to access additional resources. And this is a technique that's been observed within Team TNT's operations um, and is pretty specific to them uh, as we've seen so far. The IMDS service is seen as a solution to requiring long-term credentials um, as opposed to having those hard-coded credentials within, uh, within your file system. So the session token that's returned is going to be a short-term access key that's used by the AWS principal to gain access to the permitted resources. With this in mind, we've seen two methods of attack um, that leverage the IMDS credentials. Um, one is going to be a server-side request forgery, um, and this was observed in the Capital One breach of 2019. Uh, with this method, we... Involve, it involved kind of like two compounding vulnerabilities that just 
compounded into one big mess. Um, one was a web application firewall that was vulnerable to that SSRF attack. And then also that WAF was running on an EC2 that was using uh, the instance metadata service version one. The instance metadata is only access accessible from the instance that you were requesting it for. So in the case of a server-side request forgery, the request appears as though it's originating from the server, hence server-side, which is run on that EC2 instance, but the output is then returned to the attacker's client. Additionally, by design, IMDS version one is not session authentication based and therefore it's assumed since you already have access to the EC2, no further authentication is required. And then the second uh, method that we've seen this uh, credential service accessed is involving lateral movement once you already have initial access. Um, and this can be, that initial access can be anything between uh, an already compromised IAM account or a publicly exploited Kubernetes cluster. So with regards to a compromised IAM account, um, the attacker might choose to enumerate that account for what permissions it has. Um, one pretty tricky permission is pass role, um, which might allow the attacker to pass a highly privileged role to a service like EC2, and ideally that's gonna be the attacker's EC2 instance. So once that instance is attached to that role, that instance can then run under the permissions in which that role comes with. The attacker logs into that EC2, queries IMDS, runs AWS configure, and that session token is added and they're able to run under that role in that role's permissions. And then also, um, we've also seen Team TNT use a tool called Pyrides, and that is a Kubernetes penetration tool that has the uh, specifically has the ability to pull the session token from the instance metadata for the Kubernetes session service account assigned to that pod following running discovery modules to determine what that service account has access to. So there's a lot of opportunity for exploitation there given the right uh, the right, I guess, the right permissions and the right set of variables. Okay, I see. So it gives them ample opportunity to do all kinds of things. It's not just a crypto mine. It gives them all sorts of opportunities, really. Um, with that in mind, with that kind of multi-pronged threat that you just kind of described, uh, what should listeners do to sort of minimize the risk from this type of activity at a high level? What should they do? Sure. Uh, so one thing that's super important is to make sure that your instances are running under IMDS version 2. Um, this uses a session-based authentication. So every time you make a new request, it requires a header with your token, um, as opposed to version 1, which, like I stated earlier, it assumes since you already have access to the instance, you're fine and dandy. Other than that, um, also we recommend to have adequate cloud detections and visibility. Um, that can be anything from guard duty to um, your own ad hoc detections. Um, and then also reducing IAM privileges. So we never wanna like implement privileges that <laughs> have a wild card in them, right? So we never wanna have things that can be accessed or passed to any, any principal. And then also um, not allowing anonymous access, which kind of ties into that previous one. And then also making sure that our web application firewalls are patched and up to date. Good stuff, good stuff. So like, like with many things, it's privilege management, 
It's mm -hmm. making sure that things are patched, making sure that users only have accesses to what they need for their jobs and is required for their jobs. Um, kind of basic stuff, really. Um, excellent, good stuff. While we're talking about patching, we'll move on to the final segment of uh, this week's podcast. And uh, that relates to a recent vulnerability uh, that was actually patched by Microsoft um, after they found a zero day vulnerability that was under active exploitation in Microsoft Outlook. Uh, this has been identified as CVE 2023-23397. Uh, I imagine this is one you're gonna hear quite a bit later for, for the rest of this year. Um, but basically this could enable an attacker to perform a privileged escalation accessing the victim's uh, net NTLM v2 challenge response authentication hash and impersonate the user and essentially allows the attackers to steal uh, NTLM authentication hashes by sending malicious outlook notes or tasks to the victim. Uh, these trigger the exploit automatically when they're retrieved uh, and actually processed by the outlook client uh, which could lead to exploitation before the email is actually viewed in the preview panel um, so in other words, uh, a target doesn't actually have to open the email to fall victim to this attack, which makes it you know, really, really quite bad. Um, and it's become clear that uh, this particular vulnerability is uh, in the minds of many security researchers, at least, uh, dangerous enough to become the, the most far reaching bug of the year. Um, and since disclosure was just a, a few days ago, you know, more proof of concept exploits have kind of sprung onto the scene which is sure to translate into, you know, a snowballing effect of kind of cyber criminal and, and I guess other nation state uh, aligned actors looking at this particular bug as a way onto your network. Um, you know, particularly this helped by the fact that this you no know, user interaction is really required for this particular bug. So um, Ivan, what exploitation in the wild have we actually seen for this vulnerability given it is early days? Uh, yeah, so there have already been reports of exploitation of this vulnerability by there was a Russian APT group named Fancy Bear or APT28, and uh, they exploited the vulnerability to attack government, transportation, energy, and the defense entities in Europe. And this campaign resulted in up to 15 organizations being breached between April and December 2022. And uh, the way that Fancy Bear conducted this attack is that <clears throat> they sent malicious outlook notes and tasks to victims, and then they used it to steal the NTLM hashes. And then the Russian group, they they used stolen credentials for lateral movement uh, to change Outlook mailbox folder permissions. So that was the most, the biggest attack that we have seen reported at the moment, the biggest case of exploitation in the wild at, at this time. Great stuff. Yeah, you don't want Fancy Bear exploiting a zero day vulnerability on your network. Of, of all groups, that is the one you probably want to avoid. Um, and I guess kind of going back to that point I made earlier, just about, you know, a lot of researchers are calling this, you know, this is the big bug of the year. This is the one you need to be worried about. Uh, I, I think sometimes that gets a little blown out of proportion. Um, have you ever heard of the, the term sweetie shop syndrome? Have you ever heard that term? It's like where you just got so many things in front of you and you can't decide which one's the one you want. Um, you can almost see that a little with with kind of vulnerabilities, really. It's the, it's the most recent one and the, the biggest kind of shiniest and, and in this case, most impactful vulnerability that takes the most notice. But, um, you know, what's your take on, on this bug in particular? You know, how impactful do you think this vulnerability could be and what should listeners do? You know, it certainly has a potential to be a very dangerous vulnerability, even though there's a patch available for it now. Because uh, like you mentioned, exploitation of this vulnerability is quite trivial. 
and uh, it can be done without user interaction. So, you know, uh, that is definitely going to be exploited. And as we have seen in the past, just because a patch exists, that does not mean the activity stops. And we're likely going to continue to see exploitation attempts through, throughout the rest of the year, uh, especially now that POCs are being released. And uh, threat actors are always going to find a way to continue to target this vulnerability and exploit vulnerable systems. Excellent. Caroline, any thoughts from you on this one? Yeah, sure. I definitely agree with Ivan um, on all those points. Um, we've actually had like a pretty big interest from our customer base on this issue. Um, and I just think it's because obviously Outlook is an office application used across industries. Nearly everybody uses it. Uh, and also due to that, like no user interaction that's required. Uh, so the potential and surface for exploitation is definitely there. Uh, so really right now is a good time to lean on defense in depth and then also ensuring that those latest patches are applied um, as soon as possible. Uh, given that we know that the attacker will send uh, a specially crafted email that contains uh, kind of like a, a way for them to reach out to uh, the attacker's externally hosted SMB share, uh, which the Outlook client uses to attempt to authenticate itself using the NTLM hash. Uh, we really want to ensure that we're blocking outbound port 445, which is the uh, default port for SMB, um, if you are not already. Um, other than that, if you have known business, uh, known business operations that require that communication, um, we definitely recommend creating an, uh, an allow list so that we are only communicating with known good um, external hosts that way. Also, um, adequate phishing detection, um, looking for known malicious senders or spoofing, and then blocking those emails based on this. And then lastly, um, ensuring we have adequate visi visibility on endpoints, um, just in case something uh, does happen. Good stuff. When you said uh, blocking internal port, what was it, 445? That, that just yeah. immediately pushed me back, what, how many years now? Five years to, to uh, the WannaCry spread? Like, I remember that yep. was just one of the... Uh, <laughs> One of the recommendations it was made, so hopefully people have, have done that. Um, You'd that be surprised. Be... We still see that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I've I've had the same experience actually. Um, but yeah, I would just say this is just a horrible pinch point of kind of an easily exploitable bug on a, a piece of software that's obviously incredibly widely used. So that's probably why it's 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 so impactful, right? Um, excellent. Let's let's end there. Um, I'll just briefly end by mentioning. Uh, some of the blogs that have been released by the team in the last week, so some really excellent work's gone ahead. Uh, so first and foremost, the, the blog on breach forums, kind of identifying exactly what's happened, uh, breaking down the scenarios of what we think might happen in the future as well. Uh, we also have the a blog on the Silicon Valley Bank uh, collapse from last week and its implications for the cyber threat landscape. Uh, and if you want to tune into last week's podcast as well, uh, that was definitely a segment that the, the team discussed. Uh, and finally, we have um, a webinar on Grey Matter Phishing Analyzer, which is a product launch related to a tool which will really greatly enhance your ability to detect and analyze phishing emails. Uh, again, we'll link this in the show notes uh, to make sure that you have access to that webinar. Uh, other than that, I hope you all have a, a fantastic week. Uh, stay safe and we'll see you next week. <laughs>